worship today. What a pleasure it is to be with you. You know, a number of years ago, in fact, many, many years ago, uh, we were living in the city of Houston. Uh, my wife would call it purgatory. Uh, but we were there, and uh, I took three of my youngest, uh, I should say, the three of my older kids, except for the, the baby of the group, I took them to amusement park uh, that was called Astral World at the time. Kind of passe today, in fact, I'm not even sure it still exists. I, I think it might be gone. And uh, we had a great time that was there, but there was one particular thing that happened that gave me uh, a fair amount of consternation. And it was a place that was called the Hall of Mirrors. Now, what it was during that time, it was a maze built out of triangular cubicles of reflective glass. And uh, I was totally befuddled. Uh, my kids were smart enough to get on their hands and knees and follow the floor pattern, and they made it out long before I did. But everywhere I looked, I saw a reflection of myself. And it wasn't really until I looked up and saw the, the grid work of the ceiling, the iron grid work, that I could actually, okay. And I kept my eye on that, and I made my way out fairly easily. Uh, the Hall of Mirrors is analogous to the plight of a number of people today, many people today. We're trapped in our own little cubicle, and we suffer from constant reflections of ourselves. And God wants us to see the larger picture, have a, a bigger framework that specifically includes him and other people in the way in which we live life. And that's why I appreciated the testimony so much. They're laced with influence from friends and family members. Now, this story in John chapter 4 that we'll be looking at today, and I'm reading a lot of it, so we're not having a scripture reading at the front end of it, but it's a familiar story. And it reminds us that if we love God, then we will love people. And if we love people we will, in fact, point them to God. Uh, now, the way of our Lord is seen in this very instructive little story. It's uh, an episode of seeking and loving, in this case, those who might not be considered lovely. Uh, and at times, that includes both you and me as well. We're not always lovely. Just a couple of major points that uh, I want to Put before you today. Uh, you can follow along in uh, the outline if you want. If you don't uh, look at that outline periodically, I guarantee you I will lose your ball in the weeds, okay? So just stay with me as best you can. Jesus is in the early part of his public ministry. And again, you may recall how when Jesus reached the age of 30, he took off his carpentry belt and shook hands with his father, probably kissed his mother and said farewell to all of his younger siblings. And he went from there down to the Jordan River where John the baptizer was, was baptizing people, a baptism unto repentance. But when John saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that was the Son of God, and he was baptized by John, and after that, he came up out of the water 
he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and fasted there. And it was there that he was tempted by Satan at least three times that are recorded in the scripture. And he resisted those temptations. And we talked about the impeccability of Christ, meaning that he and his divine nature could not have yielded to sin simply because of who he was. But after that temptation and that 40-day in the wilderness experience, he finished up with that and then shows his disciples, and they launched together into a public ministry. Uh, After, in the first, as we, we did a little bit uh, a while ago, we, we looked at uh, John chapter 2. The very first thing that Jesus and his newly chosen disciples did was they went to a wedding in Cana of Galilee where he converted the water into wine. Wine is a symbol of joy in the Bible, which really describes the reason Christ even came to earth to bring heavenly joy to earthly people. Uh, in our passage today, uh, what Jesus does is that he uh, takes his disciples, chooses his disciples, and he begins to, to get them involved in ministry. Uh, they were going uh, from Galilee, I should say, Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. And if you go from north to south or south to north, as the case may be, uh, there's a, a strip of land between Galilee in the north and Judea to the south that's called Samaria. Now, uh, the Samaritans had a long history uh, and in a real respect, they were despised by the pure Jewish people. It was right in the center of the land of Israel. In fact, the Jewish people so despised the Samaritan people that they would rarely go through the, the region of Samaria itself. If they were heading north from Judea to Galilee, they would oftentimes head east first, cross the Jordan River, and then go north and then cross back over the river and be in Galilee or vice versa down in Judea. Jesus, however, was on his way to Galilee and he decided to take them through this region of Samaria. And it says, So he came to a city called Sychar, near a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. Now he had sent his disciples into a little town to get something to eat, to bring some food. And uh, we need to remember that. I want you to take that statement, if you please. They went in to get food. Put it in your shirt pocket, because I'll get back to it in a little bit from now. But Jesus was sitting alone at the well itself. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Now, in seeking out this woman, what Jesus had to do is overcome some of the cultural prejudices of his own day. The first thing was is that she happened to be a woman, obviously. Now, in those days, women were not highly regarded. And the coming of Christ did a whole lot to elevate the status of women and making them equal to their masculine counterparts. So she was a woman. Second, she appeared to be an immoral woman. And I say this very tenderly, very carefully, because she's in a very rough spot. She was coming to draw water in the heat of the day when no one else would normally be at the well. You see, women normally came to draw water, and it was the job of the wives to go get the water that they needed for that particular day, but they would go to the well, but it was a time of friendship and conversation. And it could well be that this Samaritan woman was going there in the middle of the day because she didn't want to get involved in the caustic stares by some of those that would despise her. So she wasn't interested in being there uh, during that particular time. Uh, so she was uh, not just uh, a woman. She appeared to be an immoral woman. Uh, Third, she was uh, an immoral woman who happened to be a Samaritan. And again, they, they were despised people. Uh, again, you know, the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with Samaria itself. And the rivalry was really rooted in hundreds of years of, of hatred, if you please. A little bit of Jewish history you go back with me to about 750 B.C., and Jesus is right at the turn of the, the B.C. to A.D. type thing, but hey, go back 750 years, and you realize that the nation of Israel at that particular, at that particular time uh, was in deep trouble. Uh, three or four hundred years before that, they had King Saul, followed by King David, followed by King Solomon. But there was no longer anybody that was strong enough, any single individual that was strong enough to keep a nation of Israel that had gone in deep, deep corruption on both sides, uh, both the halves of Israel. And uh, so they ended up dividing into two. There was Israel to the north and Judea to the south, and they functioned as really two different nations within a nation itself. And the corruption in the northern kingdom got so bad that the Assyrians came down from the north and they, they captured the, the northern kingdom. Uh, they had had 17 kings over them prior to that. They were all evil, and so God was punishing them. What ended up happening is that the Assyrians carried away a number of Jews back up to Assyria to live there, and they sent some of their own people down to uh, the, the Galilean area, if you please, to settle there. And over a period of decades and uh, hundreds of years, there was a lot of intermarriage between the Assyrians and the Jewish people, invariably developing kind of a half-breed race between Jew and Gentile. And uh, the Assyrians, or the Samaritans in that thing, were tremendously hated 
by those who were poor Jews, and that's why they would have nothing to do with Samaria. But this is, uh, this is what Jesus was going through. Now, uh, the Samaritans had kind of uh, lost their right by the Jews, if you please, to, to be considered to be Jewish. In other words, they had forfeited their Jewish heritage. And this woman uh, at the well was a descendant of the half-breed race, if you please. And she was subject to all of the prejudice and all of the ridicule that came from the Jewish culture. So you have a nameless Samaritan woman who was poor, who was uneducated, and uh, carried an immoral reputation. Now, a chapter earlier, you have uh, a Jewish man named Nicodemus. And he was rich, he was educated, he was moral, he was religious, and he had a great reputation. Now, if Nicodemus is a man, as a man, is an example of the truth that no one can rise so high in human nature as to be above the need of salvation, then this woman here is an example of someone who can't sink so low as to be beyond the salvation of Christ. So it's no accident that these stories are placed side by side in the Scripture because both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman were objects of God's seeking love. And that's the beauty of what's going on here. I want to read again, beginning in verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir... You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself? Now, when Jesus was talking to this woman about living water, he was referring to himself. Uh, on the other hand, she was thinking simply about the liquid stuff. Uh, living water at that time was understood by most of the populace to be running water, a stream as opposed to a well. And so the living water was flowing water. It, uh, it was preferable uh, to the stagnant water that was in a well. And so the woman at the well wanted to know where this flowing water was. Are you greater then our father Jacob, I mean, he couldn't find any, if you please, running water. He couldn't find a stream anywhere, otherwise he would have never dug this well. Now, I want you to notice Jesus' response to this woman. He said in verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw 
water. Now, the implication of all of this dialogue really goes back to the question, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? And by the way, Jesus is talking to her. He is saying, as a matter of fact, I am greater than Jacob, the one who dug this well. The water in this well is physical water that will satisfy your physical thirst. But the water that I'm offering satisfies your spiritual thirst and leads to eternal life. Now, the woman hasn't quite caught on, so Jesus touches her uh, in the most sensitive aspect of her life. And he says to her, go call your husband. Now, the quickest way to a heart is through a wound. And she comes back and says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're now living with is not your husband. And she says, I perceive you must be a prophet. (laughs) Now, then she changes the subject, by the way. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You people say Jerusalem is the place. Now, a trapped animal will chew its leg off in order to escape. A trapped sinner will mangle her mind and rip up all the rules of logic. So she says, why, yes, as long as we're talking about my adulterous behavior, what's your stance on where people ought to worship? That's kind of what she was doing here. Now, Jesus doesn't insist that she stays on the path. He's willing to follow her right down uh, into the bush and talk about worship a little bit. Uh, And there's a historical context to this question here because a little over 100 years or 700 years earlier, again, the northern kingdom fell into the hands of the Assyrians and the southern kingdom, 100 years after that, fell into the hands of the Babylonians. And so, uh, you know, Israel was was just a miserable time, you know, that uh, first century B.C., or the first century, the first thousand years of B.C., uh, because Israel was just in bad, bad straits. It had foreigners ruling in the land uh, that was there. And so the Babylonians hauled a number of captives off to Babylonia, and some of which we've already studied here. That would be Daniel and his three buddies, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And, uh, but 70 years after that, the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and they said to the Jews, hey, you can, you're allowed to return to your homeland. And some of them did. Most of them remained in the land of their exile. They'd already set up businesses there. They were profiting and so forth. And that's why there are Jewish pockets still all over parts of the Middle East there, not just in the land of Israel. They're still there. But most of them came back, or many of them did come back. And when they came back, they said, we want to rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed in the south 70 years earlier. And so they started rebuilding the temple. Then all of a sudden, the Samaritans came down to the Jews that were rebuilding the temple and said, we want to help. And the Jews said, no way. We don't want your help at all building the temple. You've polluted the race. And so what happened is, and these very faithful, mixed breed, if you please, people that did want to honor God, they built their own temple 
on Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritan temple became a rival temple, and the Samaritan religion became a, a, a rival religion. Now, where do we worship? Here or Jerusalem, the woman asked. And listen to what Jesus says. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah, that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And then I wrote down, Jesus drops the hammer and says, I who speak to you am he. Now, at this very dramatic, cliffhanging moment, decision-making moment, guess who shows up with 12 bags of Chinese takeout from Sam Wu's? <laughs> the disciples came, verse 27, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one asked, why do you speak with her? The woman left her water pot and went to the city. So, first of all, we see God seeks people, and the second reason is God seeks people because they need God, just like he sought you out. His testimonies were wonderful. God sought him out. It's God's thing. Brought us in. That's why it's all grace. That's why we come here each week and thank God for what he's done. But let me give you three reasons why we need God. First, we need God because he's the one that gives us value. He places the highest priority on human nature. And this Samaritan woman was actually working on her sixth husband. And it really wasn't about sex. It was a thirst to be loved. And her serial marriages probably were the result of the fact that she was barren. And when she get married to somebody and she was unable to reproduce, the husbands probably just walked out one after another. Children were a big deal back then, just as they are today. And we all want to be good parents. We all want to raise a godly seed. Let them know that we love them so that they, they'll count on us as, as our kids. But if we're to grow up, if we're to continue to mature with some measure of health, then we're going to need someone who loves us, who is wise and patient and forgiving, and who is committed to our growth and welfare. You see, as wonderful as people are in our lives, the love that they offer is never going to quite be what we need. And that's why sometimes married people talk to each other. They're committed to each other, but they say, well, I don't feel that I'm loved by you in the way that I need to be loved by you. 
And in reality, uh, no one, even the best of marriages, cannot love each other the way the other person needs to be loved. We can do our best, we make mistakes, we apologize, but we just don't do it. And that's why we need the love of Jesus Christ to find true mental and emotional and spiritual health. You know, I I would like to think that I could really come through for my family, love my wife the way she deserves to be loved, love my kids the way that they deserve to be loved, and my grandkids and my in-laws and so forth. But, you know, my love is always going to be imperfect, just as yours will be as well. Uh, and because of that, if, they don't get, if we don't get the love of Jesus Christ, then in some fashion or other, our lives are always going to carry a measure of dysfunction. You know, all of us have a transcendent thirst uh, that only God can satisfy. And that's why God seeks us. He runs us down even when we're moving in the other direction because he knows that we're only going to find the truest value in our relationship with him. You know, the French uh, existentialist Camus, he wrote a brilliant novel called The Fall, and I read it a couple of times. And it's a story of a Parisian lawyer named Jean-Baptiste Clemence. And he longed for eternal life, but he couldn't find it. And so what he did is he indulged himself with harlots and uh, uh, drank from nights on end, but he always woke up the next morning with just this case of, man, what's going on? And it's like anything else uh, to us as well, but the temporal pleasures in which he indulged indulged, and which we indulge at times are disconnected from our ultimate needs. And it ended up contributing to a sense of meaninglessness. Uh, when we ignore our Lord, no matter how much structure we put into our life, we're always going to feel like a, an accident in a world where everything cries out for substance. So, first, a little review. We need God because he gives us value. And then there's a second reason why we need God, and it's because he gives us the freedom of a clear conscience. Uh, We have a couple of negative issues that are always bubbling to the surface of your life and in my life. One is guilt and the other is shame. And guilt comes when we simply violate an objective norm that's outside of ourselves. Shame, on the other hand, is the internal embarrassment when we've had the dark side of our being exposed in a public fashion. Now, this woman's past behavior was totally laid bare by Jesus Christ. But take note of what she does. Verse 28, So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city, and they were coming to him, Christ. And so there was something of a revival that was taking place at Jacob's well. And how is it that this woman 
and all of the people of the city were so excited about coming to an individual that can look right through them and see all of the sordid issues in their own life. It's amazing. You know, there's something about being fully known and yet fully loved that's fully free. And that's why we have the freedom in Jesus Christ. Because when we peel away all of the layers, we discover that shame is basically aggravated self-pity. Shame will cause us to hate ourselves, but when shame collides with grace, it'll cause us to hate that which we do that is wrong. And that's where we want to be. A little review. First, we need God because he gives us value. Second, we need God because he grants us the freedom of a clear conscience. And then the third reason that we need God is because he gives us joy. We talked about that a few weeks back uh, in chapter 2. And joy comes when we have a focus that is worthy of our worship. And worship, be it private, be it public like we did today, uh, expresses the worthiness of God, and God is worthy because of who he is, why he has come, and what he has done. And when God's love for you and for me drop 18 inches from our head to our heart, it will transform our spirituality, transform our personality. Mean-spirited people never praise anything. They're negative about just about everything. On the other hand, the people that you most want to be around are, no, are those that find something to praise in everything. They look past the negative, they see the positive, and they verbalize it. And it affects all of our outlooks on life. You know, quite honestly, um, I can honestly say this... Um, between me, but, you know, between Suzanne and me, and I think of Chuck and Patty and Mike and Tina over there, and we all came here just about at the same time. I led the, the way a little bit, but uh, they came just very soon after I did. And uh, the reason that uh, the staying power, if you please, the the thing that we're here is because you're so positive about life and about one another. And we, we heard it today in the music. We heard it today in the testimonies. It's just um, a life-giving church where you take God extremely seriously, but you don't take yourself so seriously. And that allows you to intermingle with one another and why lifelong friendships are forming here. And it's really been a joy for the three couples that I've mentioned and just to be a part of that and witness what is taking place. And uh, there's obviously room for improvement. We all know it individually and collectively. But, you know, as long as we keep heading in the right direction, God will continue to use this particular fellowship in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, like the woman at the well, we're all deceivers. We're all ready to accent our virtues, conceal our liabilities. I want you to know all the good stuff about me, but really I don't want you to know any of the dirt. That's just the way it's going to be, you know? And if you want me to tell you, just forget it. I'm not going to do it. 
you know, but it's there, and you know it's there, and I know it's there in you, and so forth. That's why we can get along, fellow sinners, to the glory of God, you know. But uh, Jesus dispels our pride by laying us low, and then as we take refuge in him, he lifts us up. You see, the woman at the well discovered that Jesus knew her completely and yet loved her infinitely. And for the first time in her life, she was free. And right now, she and Nicodemus are on that same level. I'm sure they're fellowshipping together in glory at this particular time. We're going to close our service with a time of communion. I'd like to just say a a word of prayer. Uh, But before I say that, uh, the elements will be passed out, and I'm going to invite you to hang on to both of them uh, as they're being passed out, and I'll come back up here, and we'll take them together as a family. Father, we thank you for the grace that you continue to dispel on our own lives and give to us. And it's just a recognition, Father, that... uh, if we treat each other positively, as you treat us in a positive fashion, we will uh, clear up a lot of the negative stuff on our own because of the grace that we're being shown. And we think about uh, what you have done for us, the sacrifice that you have made. And as we enter into this uh, solemn and yet exciting time of remembering who you are, and what you did on our behalf, Father. We would pray that our love for you would even ratchet up a few more notches of this day as we remember your death on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen.